Okay, that actually wasn't the sermon, believe it or not. That was the, that was the sermon before the sermon. We're going to continue this morning in a series, six-week series. This is week four uh, on worship. We've called Live to Worship, where we're discovering that worship is not just one activity that you do at one time in one place, but worship, rightly done, is all of life. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2, kind of our theme verses uh, for this series when he says, church in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What's the true and proper worship? It's offering your bodies, your whole selves to God as a living, which means an ongoing, everyday sacrifice to him to bring him glory and pleasure. And so, uh, Paul is trying to change the way they think about worship. Worship isn't something that happens at that time at that building in that way. Worship is something that can happen every day in every place in every activity because it is the way we are to do everything. And so we're talking about worship and what it looks like to worship in all the areas of our life because every single one of you, whether you're young or old, working or retired, we all have 168 hours every single week. Now, maybe the average one of you is gonna spend three of those hours here. It'd be pretty sad if if, if worship was only what happened here 2% of your life. Worship is about the other 165 hours of the week. And so we're looking at those other 165 hours and what it means to worship in them. Uh, In the last few Sundays, we've talked about parenting as worship. Last Sunday, we talked about marriage as worship. If you weren't here, if you're married, if you hope to be married, go to the website, listen listen to that. Uh, This morning, we want to look at another area of life, a really important area. And and statistically, this area is where you're going to spend more hours of your life than any other place. Any idea? Work. Work. You will spend more hours working than you will spend doing anything else. Being with your wife, being with your kids, probably even sleeping. Um, And and, and I wonder if this isn't the area of our life where we, we are slowest to make the connection between our faith and what we do is the area of work. What if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? I mean, if we do more work in our lives than anything else, when I say work, I know some of you, you've got the nine to five job, you got that thing you do, 40, 50, 60 hours a week to pay the bills, to feed your family. Some of you, you maybe did that, now you're retired. Some of you, you haven't even got there yet, you're students. And so when I say work, I don't mean just that the, the job where you make income. I mean, whatever activity you do to contribute to your own needs, but to contribute to the common good. So that could be for you students, that's, that's studying. You know, in high school, in university. For those of you who are retired, that, that, that's the work you're doing, maybe volunteering at the church or in different places. It might mean what you do at home as, it's, as a stay-at-home mom or dad. Work is so much bigger than just our job. What if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? I think it would change the way we viewed our work and the way we did our work. So this morning we wanna look at work as worship and how we can live that out. So uh, close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes. 
paradise. I want you to picture paradise. What do you see when you hear the word paradise? Are you at your job? Are you at church listening to a sermon? If you are, please raise your hand. I see that hand. That other hand, thank you. Any other hands? A few more hands. I lied, there were no hands. What do you see? Paradise. Or you can open your eyes. You know what I see when I, when I think paradise? A beach in the Dominican. And there's a hammock there. And there's someone else serving me. I was going to say her name is Erica, but I was just... <laughs> No, can't say that. <clears throat> There's someone else that's uh, got the food and, and tending to my needs. And to me, that's paradise. Now, we often think of paradise as that state. We might call it at the very beginning before sin came into the world and, and changed everything. And we're going to talk about what paradise actually looks like. But most of us, when we think of paradise, we think of leisure, we think of rest, maybe we think of the cottage, we think of vacation. I mean, if you were to win the lottery, a couple million dollars today, what would you do? That might be a, a good indication of what you think paradise is. If you could do anything, what would you do? Well, if, if you have a job, my guess is you would walk into work tomorrow morning, you go into your boss's office, and you would say, I... Am I the only one that would quit if I went? <laughs> That's why God's not going to let me win a million dollars. I mean, although if I start seeing you guys handing me lottery tickets, I'll know exactly what's happening. But um, um, you know what? Some of us, hey, it, the, maybe it's this pendulum. Some of us, we're going to view work as uh, the thing that is most important to us, the thing that brings us the deepest meaning in life. And hey, it's possible to make an idol of work and to become a workaholic. On the other end of that spectrum, I think many of us, we might view work as almost like a necessary evil. Not something I wanna do, not something I enjoy. It's just something I gotta do to pay the bills. It's a necessary evil. If I was totally free, I wouldn't work. I'd be free from work if I could do anything else. Now, that's what we normally think freedom is. Freedom is to do whatever it is we want. Now, that's not how the Bible describes freedom. Imagine a fish, in a fish lives in water, made for water, gets oxygen out of water, tries to get oxygen from the air. It jumps onto land because it wants to be free of the water. What would happen to the fish? It would experience freedom until it wouldn't a few minutes later, right? Because it was made to experience the best life, freedom in this context, within these limitations. That's how God made the fish to be free there. What about for us? Where has God made us to be free? If we go back to his creation of us at the beginning of the Bible, we're gonna find that God made us to work. Work is part of paradise. Now some of you, you thought work came into the world when sin came into the world. But we find that work is a part of what God has made us to do, to do what we are. It's there at the very beginning as we'll see, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter one. Now often when we go to Genesis chapter one and do God, to God's creation of the world, we normally go with the wrong questions. Our question might be, how did, how did God do it? 
How long did it take for God to make the world? That's an interesting question, but that's not really the important question, and that's certainly not the question that whoever wrote this was writing to answer. They had different, because no one, the day that was written, no one wondered that. No one wondered, I wonder how many years it took to make, or days it took to make the earth. No one asked that question. The questions they did ask were, who is God and what does it mean to be a human being? Those were the important questions, and those are the questions that this text is addressing because the Israelites, they lived surrounded by other cultures that were bigger and more powerful, that were, that were the, the trendsetters. You had little Israel, you had big Babylon, you had big Egypt, you had big Assyria. They all had their own gods. They had their stories of, of who God was and how, how he made and what it meant to be a human being. And so the Israelites were were bombarded with all of these ideas. And this is written to answer the question, who is the true God and what does it mean to be a human being? So back in college, I remember writing a paper on the Babylonian creation story. It was called the Enuma Elish. It was very interesting. It was about this god named Marduk and this other god named Tiamat, and they didn't like one. They had a falling out, and so they had a fight, and Marduk killed Tiamat, and out of the body of Tiamat made the earth, and then formed out of the earth people who as punishment would have to do the work on Marduk's behalf to serve Marduk so he could live as God in leisure and luxury while all these minions down here did the dirty work And and that's how they viewed the world, that's how they viewed God, that's how they viewed themselves, and that's how they viewed work. But the biblical story is so, so different and so unique compared to all these other stories because here in the biblical story, we find that work is not a curse. Actually, work was made by God to be a blessing. And you cannot experience the fullness of God's blessing apart from work. So in Genesis chapter one, We'll start, at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 27. Just read a few of these verses God's already made. Um, everything else, now at the end he makes man, mankind. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I'm gonna give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They're gonna be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and all all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I'm gonna give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And then if you skip a few verses to verse 15, um, he says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden that he had made, this wonderful place, paradise. He put him in paradise to work it and to take care of it. So there you see right at the beginning in paradise, God makes the man and part of what man is for is work. If you go to the end of the Bible, the very last chapter, Revelation 22, it actually goes right back to the beginning. It re-envisions the end as the Garden of Eden again. And again, it talks about the trees bearing all, all these harvests of fruit. And it describes us in paradise in the end working. You're gonna work in heaven. You bummed out about that? 
It's gonna be better work, but what, what we're supposed to see is that we were made to work. That command that we have in the 10 commandments, Exodus chapter 20, when he says that we're supposed to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, God says, for on six days you shall do all your labor and on the seventh day you are to rest. We, we, we normally think of that as a command to rest. And, and it is, it's a command to rest a little bit. But it's also a command to work. These six days you shall work. It's such an important part of why we have been made and therefore how we will find freedom and fulfillment in life because hey if you go to the nursing home some of you you work in a nursing home some of you you've got loved ones maybe a spouse or a parent in a nursing home and they're aged they're maybe immobile they can't do a whole lot anymore at this stage of their life in a nursing home what when you talk to those people what is like their greatest frustration their greatest lament regret you know what it normally is i feel so useless which is a way of saying, I can't work, I can't contribute. And for them that's frustrating to feel useless to themselves and to others. And so it's a part of how God has made us. And I, I don't know about you, but I often think of kind of work as a burden. Not here at the church, I love this work. But I mean like the yard work and stuff. Right? Work as a burden when actually it, it, it's a part of God's blessing in our lives. You know, we, we don't just need the money from work to survive, we actually need the work to survive. We need the work to thrive because work is food for our soul, it's food for our body, it's for the strength of our body and our mind and our soul. It is food for our soul. We were made to work. We need to understand also then how our work connects to God's work because that's what makes it worship when we understand how our work connects to God's work because what you find out is not just that we were made to be workers but that God himself is a worker. And this is what makes God so unique and different from the supposed gods of all the other nations around Israel. Their gods were not workers. Their gods had made them or others to be the workers. But our God, the true God, we find is a worker. He's absolutely unique. That word for God's work here is the same word that's used for our work. It's a word that describes menial labor with your hands. If you go right back to the beginning, verse one of Genesis one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, listen, if you were God and you created everything, how would you create it? How would you go about doing that? I'd probably just be like, to show my magnificent power, just everything there like this, boom! Because God can do that, boom, it's all there. There was nothing there, now everything is there, just as I want it to be. And yet when you look at how God made the world, he chose to do it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. You know what he's saying? The first thing God did is he made the raw material and it didn't have order to it. It was formless and void, and he made that, and then over a period of time, progressively, he brings order to what he has made. He works, he creates out of that. It's this process of creating, and what we're supposed to see is that God is a worker, and when, and when he comes into the world in the form of Jesus Christ, 
What does Jesus do for the bulk of his life? I mean, is he kind of a philosopher king? You know, that sage that you seek out for wisdom? What does Jesus do for the bulk of his life? He's a carpenter. I mean, what, 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 what job would God pick? He's a carpenter. He works with his hands. He makes stuff. He's a creator. Um, God works. Not only does God work, God delights in his work. He looks at what he's made here and he says, it was very good. Work is not a chore to God. Work is for him a, a, a delight. He calls what he's made very good. God works, God delights in his work and God commissions us whom he has made to carry on his work. That's what it means to be made in God's, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? Does God have two arms and two legs? No. Does it just mean that we're smarter than the chimpanzees and we can comprehend God and they can't? Yeah, in part. What does it mean that we're made in God's image? Well, I think largely what it means um, is, is that you are, you are God's representative in the earth. I mean, back in that day, kings, they would actually make statues that were called the image, the same word, and they would put them on the border of their territory. So you, you, you come up to the border of this nation and there was an image of the king. And that was a way of saying, he rules here. And he's saying, we are the image of God. Commissioned by God to carry out and extend his rule in the world. Our work is to be an extension of God's work. And that's why God, when he's creating, he's naming. You know, he separates the, 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 the light from the darkness. And he separates the ground from the sky. And the ground from the water. And, and, he, and he's naming the, the day, the night, sky, land. And then he makes animals and plants and he says to Adam, he says, I want you to name the animals. Seems just like an unimportant detail, but God has named everything to this point. Now he says to Adam, you name the animals. What is he doing? He's saying, your work now in the world is an extension of my work. You are carrying it on. You were created to create. What does that look like? Well, that's all our work. That's what all our work is. An extent is to be an extension of God's work of bringing order in the world and bringing everything under his reign. Whether you're a farmer, a teacher, a nurse, an insurance agent. I'm kidding, not an insurance agent. Of course, an insurance agent. I was that for a few years. Help people protect their stuff. That's good. All of our work is to be about extending God's work in the world, reflecting his creative nature in the world. It's part of God's character. And so Martin Luther said, uh, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. God loves clean floors. He's a God of order. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. God is a craftsman. And when we do good craftsmanship, we are reflecting the character of God, the perfect worker. So work finds its greatest meaning and delight when we, we view it 
in connection with the work of God, an extension of the work of God in the world. And that's when it becomes worship, when we make that connection. That's what makes work a calling. Now, normally we reserve that word calling for maybe if you go into ministry. And even that word ministry, maybe what I do or a missionary does or an evangelist does. The Bible never makes that distinction, okay? That's our, everything is spiritual. All work is God's work if done for his glory. All work is a calling from him, not merely a job. All work is ministry because it has the potential to bring God's glory to show his superior worth in what we do. It all has the potential to be worship and therefore it is a calling, it is ministry. Do you view your work that way? I mean, I don't know what you do. Some of you got a day job. Some of you, you volunteer, you study, you help out others, you look after the grandkids, you volunteer in church. Do you view what you do as a calling or simply as a task, a job? All work can please God, which makes all work equally significant. That's what I love about what this means. I mean, whether you're the CEO or you're the guy that mops up after the lights get turned out. I mean, if this is true, then all work is equally significant to God because all work has the ability to bring him glory and pleasure because in it we can show his worth. So Paul says this in Colossians chapter three. Feel free to turn there if you have your Bible with you. We'll spend a a few more minutes here. Colossians chapter three. Verse 17, Paul says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is just another place where Paul says, guys, all of life is worship. Everything you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means for his glory, to show his worth. It's all worship. Work as worship changes how we'll view work and how we will do work. And so he goes on to explain what that means in the various areas of life. He talks to wives, husbands, children, uh, fathers. And the last couple Sundays, we've talked about parenting and marriage. And then he goes on in verse 22 and he talks to slaves. And then he talks a little bit to masters. So we might consider this employees, employers. Because if these words apply to slaves, if slaves can do this, then, then those of us, hey, we might feel like slaves. But certainly this applies to us in our work as well. So let's read these together. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry your favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. See, there's no favoritism. It doesn't matter where you are on the totem pole. God doesn't play favorites. All our work is equally significant. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven so now Paul turns to work Um, I don't know that anyone does more menial work than maybe a slave the sort of person he's talking to here so this applies to all of us I mean whether you're flipping burgers pouring coffee you know cleaning sheets whatever it is this 
uh, is for all of us here. Uh, what, is a, uh, what does it look like to worship through your work? And I just want to provide here briefly four, um, four different ideas, answers to this question. And they all start with H, so we'll call this kind of the 4H. 4H work. Worship through work, Paul says, by being an honest worker. An honest worker. He said there in verse 32, Obey your masters in everything, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That word sincerity of heart literally means singleness. One, not double, one. It's talking about integrity. Always being one way, not one way here, and then a different way over here. But being totally aligned with our words, with our deeds, with our motives. To be honest, he says. Because uh, it, it's, really, it's really easy to be a dishonest worker, I guess. He, he knew that slaves would need to hear this and that we too in our work would need to hear this. In Titus chapter two, verse nine, Paul addressing slaves tells them not to steal. Now why, why, would, a, why would a slave want to steal? Well, he's got lots of it. I don't have as much of it. He doesn't need it. I can use it more than him. I don't really get paid or appreciated enough. There's all sorts of reasons why a, why a slave might want to take for themselves to be dishonest, and there's all sorts of ways to be dishonest in our work by stealing time or privileges. Um, apparently, 50 per, 57% of all people that have discount privileges in their work abuse their discount privileges, 57%. And that's why when I go to your workplace, I test you and, and ask you for a discount just to see if you're gonna be one of those fit. I don't want the discount myself. If you give it to me, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> but I'm testing you. You know, so most people, they abuse their discount privileges in their work. Um, they might work one way when the eyes of, of their boss or someone else is on them, and a different way when not. I remember when I was uh, working in road construction, which I didn't enjoy a whole lot. It was a summer job for me while I was a college student. And, um, my boss, we all knew our boss's truck. We all knew what it sounded like. It was a diesel black big Dodge. The other boss had a, it was, it was a dually, it was a white Ford. And so when we would be working on the job site, they, they would just pop in every now and then. It's, we, we, we'd be kind of dogging it, and then you'd hear the rumble of the diesel. And you just watch everyone really start to work. Right? Oh, I think the boss might be pulling up, and then you'd look, and it was just someone else, and they drove by, and they're like, oh, okay, Kind of went to dogging it again. And um, I mean, I don't know if you do that. Act one way, work one way. When someone's eyes are on you in a different way when they're not. What Paul says here is that it's really God's eyes that matter. We're doing what we do for God. Right? And God never underpays us. We are not underappreciated by God. We are not overlooked by God. Even if we are by others. So to be an honest worker in what we do, and if you're a boss, an honest boss with your clients, not cutting corners, not cheating, but to be honest. He says that we need to be a hard worker. If you go on in verse 23, he says, whatever you do, I mean, like he's talking to slaves here, what are they doing? These are not hedge fund traders. These are people that are cooking in the kitchen, they're cleaning toilets, this is what they're doing. Whatever you do, he says, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. 
Whatever you do, do it with all your heart, which is a way of saying, give your best. Whatever you do, give it your best. Why? Because you're not working for your boss. All your work is work for God. It's a reflection of God. It's done for him. Give your best. Sometimes we, we just want to meet the, the minimum standards in what we do. I've heard there's like three, there's three kinds of workers when a piano needs to be moved. There's the person that gets behind it and pushes and the second person kind of pulls and guides in front and then the third person grabs the piano stool. <laughs> Do you know which one I am? Any guesses? Any guesses? I'm number one. <laughs> Maybe not. <clears throat> uh, the measure that God uses is not what must I do, but, but what can I do? This is the question that should drive our work. What can I do? What can I do? Not must what I do, what, what, what can I do? All our work is an offering to God who sees all. And so you've, you've got work in the workplace. You get paid for that. That's important. You've got to meet your boss's expectations. You don't want to lose your job. Or maybe you're a volunteer in the kids program and you wouldn't mind losing your job. I don't know. What does that mean when you're a volunteer, whatever you do? What, what does it mean when you're working in the nursery? Right? To give your best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up on time. I, I, I'm going to give these kids the best of me. I'm, I'm going to build relationships. I'm going to be very attentive to them. I'm going to give my best. So whether this is work, whether this is volunteering, whether it's work at home, we are to be hard workers. We are to give our best to God as an offering to him because whatever we have, God has entrusted to us. God has entrusted to us our skills, our knowledge, our experiences. All of that is something that God has put into our hands as a trust to extend his work in the world. Paul says we are doing it for him. Work your best. An honoring worker He says, slaves, obey your masters in everything. And, and maybe masters can command obedience in the flesh, but they can't compel your attitude or your spirit. I might be able to say to my kid, clean your room. I might try to say, change your attitude. You can't really compel that. That's something that we control. We control our attitude, the way we respond to others. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul would say to slaves, he, said, he would say that slaves, you, you must show full respect to your masters, which I'm sure would be hard to do because sometimes maybe they're not worthy of respect. Maybe they don't act very honorable and yet I'm called to show full honor to them, to those around me without conditions. Often in workplace, there's a bit of a nice, uh, uh, maybe a flow of authority and that can be kind of problematic. I remember hearing of a, a secret service agent who was, tasked with guarding the president, and someone asked him, what if you don't like the president? And I'm like, what if you hate the guy? What if you hate his policies? And, and, and the Secret Service agent said, I'm not protecting the president. I'm protecting the presidency. Right? It's not the person we protect. It's the position that we protect. God has established order and authority, and we honor God by honoring others. We honor God by honoring authority. This is one of the ways we show God's worth. We're to be an honoring worker. <clears throat> what does that mean for you if you're a boss, if you have employees, people that work under you? Because that flows both ways. What does it look like to show no favoritism? 
as a boss and the way you treat the person at the top and the way you treat the person at the bottom because if you live like this, if you're this sort of worker, you will stand out from the crowd. And I think that's the hope. That's the hope that you would stand out from the crowd because this is what, uh, this is what Paul says to the slaves in Titus chapter two, verses uh, nine and 10. Tell the slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. In your work, he's saying, in your work, make the gospel attractive. Which isn't to say like it's somehow not pretty enough and you have to make it prettier. It's, it's, it's like a beautiful face, and the actual word here is to adorn. It's the word you would use for women who put nice, beautiful, dangly earrings on their ears. It doesn't change their face. It doesn't make their face any more or less beautiful. What it does is it draws your eye. It draws your attraction to the beauty. And what he's saying is your work adorns the gospel. When you work like this, you will stand out, you will be different, and you will draw people's attention to the beauty of the gospel. You will make that attractive in the way you work. I remember when I was in this, uh, again, coming back to my uh, road construction days, and again, I did not enjoy that at all. I was the only Christian guy, maybe 70 guys there. (coughs) I was the only one following Christ as far as I knew, and so I was a little bit different. Um, and so I, I'd get bugged a lot, I'd get ribbed, uh, mocked a little bit. It was all good. But then I would work with Darcy. Darcy was the boss's son, and often I was paired up with him, and we'd be driving out to job sites. And, and it was when it was just, just the two of us in a car, when there was no other, no other ears or eyes, he would open up. He would ask questions. He wondered. He saw something different. And we had great conversation about God. And so uh, maybe a year later, and, and I was working there that summer. I, I, was, um, I, was on the, I was on the shovel. That was my tool. I was on the shovel. He got engaged and he didn't know who to tune, turn to to marry him. So here I was 20 years old and I was his shovel guy on his crew. And he said, Rusty, would you marry me? Well, like he was marrying a woman, but I'm just... <laughs> 2019, you gotta, gotta clarify. Would you officiate at my wedding? And um, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was 20 years old. But there on that day, I, I, I had my best clothes on, and there were 70 guys and their families, all, the whole work crew there. And I get up there, and I was able to share the gospel with these people. And it was really cool. And I don't know what impact that all might have had. But when you work this way, when work is worship, you will stand out, and you will make the gospel attractive to others. That's part of what it means for work to be worship. And then lastly, to be a happy worker. I mean, not, we, we don't enjoy all of our work. Maybe much of it. For some of us, it's maybe drudgery or a drain or just a way that we can feed our family. And if we could do something else, we'd do something else. And we know in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, it has an effect. And God says, okay, work's gonna be hard now. You're gonna sweat. The weeds are gonna grow faster than the crops. You're gonna toil but work can still be a joy, Paul says, because at the end of the day, you're not serving the people around you. At the end of the day, he says, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? I mean, you spend most of your life working. It would be kind of sad if you couldn't serve God with that. But he said, with all of that, you can serve God and bring him glory and pleasure 
through how you do what you do. And then he goes on to say, and none of that will go unrewarded. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart, not for, like working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, for it is the Lord Christ you are serving. You know you're gonna receive a reward from God for all that stuff you do that no one else recognizes and you get underappreciated for. It will be rewarded in proper time. I remember a story uh, I read of a, an elderly missionary couple retiring after years of service in Africa, and they were coming home on a ship back to America. Happened to be the same ship that uh, President Roosevelt was on. He'd been in Africa on a big game hunt for a few weeks. And so the ship docked in port in New York. There were thousands of well-wishers and dozens of reporters. They were all lined up to greet um, and welcome Roosevelt home. There wasn't a single person there to welcome these missionaries after all those years of service. As the couple rode home in a taxi, the man complained to his wife. He said, it just doesn't seem right. We get 40 years of our lives to serve Jesus Christ, and nobody knows or cares when we return home. Yet the president goes over there for a few weeks to kill a few animals, and the whole world takes notice. He said they later realized that the reason they hadn't received their reward yet was because they hadn't actually gone home yet. That's what Paul's saying. You haven't gone home yet. There's a time coming when all of your work done for God's glory will receive its due reward. And that knowledge, slaves, that knowledge allows you to do whatever you do, even if it's menial, even if it's difficult, to do it with a measure of joy that you couldn't otherwise do it with, with happiness, because you can, in doing this, bring God glory and receive a reward from Him. And that allows you to be happy in your work. So the way we work and the way we do our work can be one of the most powerful ways that we express God's worth, his superior worth in our, uh, in our lives. And so as we think about taking this home, a few questions I want to put to you that you can ponder and pray about. Do you view your work as more of a job or as a calling to bring God's glory? Do you even think about it that way? What is work to you? Is it a job or is it a calling to bring God glory? And secondly, how can you use what God has entrusted to you, your job, your work, your skills, your knowledge, your experience, all of that, all that he's put in your hands, how can you use that in a a greater way to show God's worth and to continue his work in the world? What would that look like going forward for work to be worship for you? Our work is a declaration of who God is, what God has done. Uh, But our work, it has to be said, is just a response to the work of God on our behalf. I mean, my fear is that anyone hears a message like that and leaves going, okay, I gotta try harder. Gotta go back to work and I gotta do better for God to bring him pleasure. And that's all true, but, 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 but none of that is about going out and securing God's favor, making God happy. That, that's not why we do what we do according to Paul. He, he says, hey, all of that, that's good. All of that is nothing more than the grateful, loving response to the work that God has done for you. And so that's what we remember here when we take communion together is we remember the work of God for us which transforms the way we live and the way we work. 
Listen to what Paul said here in Ephesians 2. He says, it's by God's grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. It doesn't come to you by your work so that no one can boast, for we are God's work. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Yeah, he's created us and he's called us to be about his work in the world, absolutely. But you know what, we fall short. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. We just haven't been perfectly been able to do that and that's okay, God knew that. And that's why he did work on our behalf, the work we couldn't do. Jesus came into the world He lived that perfect life and he said, my father is still working to this day and I too am working. I only do what my father tells me to do. Jesus was a perfect worker, perfect worker on our behalf. When he died on that cross, he died for us, all our shortcomings, all our failures. He bore our sin on the cross that we might know God's grace, that it might be through his work that we might be saved, made right with God and have life and not through our own. And that's what we celebrate here as we take this cup and we take this bread. We celebrate what Jesus has done in his work on our behalf. And that just totally changes how we go about our work. It's not not anxious toil to try to secure God's favor. No, we already have God's favor in Jesus. What we do now is just our loving, grateful response to God because we want to make God happy because what he's done for us. And so... Uh, before the elements are passed and we take together, I just invite you to bow your head. Just take a moment personally to, to pray, to talk to God, and to thank him for the work that he's done on your behalf. Thank him for, for that, what he's done through Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection. And maybe as, as well, just say, God, I offer myself to you. I offer my work to you. I offer my, all my skills to you. Um, use me for your glory. Just take a moment to pray. Father God, we love you because we know that your love preceded ours. While we were sinners, you loved us. You sent your son into the world and he bore our sin and our shame and all our flaws and failures. Um, And he won for us forgiveness. He won for us relationship with you. He won for us a future, eternal life that we receive not through our own efforts, no, that we receive just by putting faith in him and what he's done for us. And so Lord, we thank you that we can be here and we can be secure. We don't have to wonder where we stand with you. We don't have to strive and just hope We can know, we can know that we are forgiven. We can know that we belong to you. We can know what our future holds because of what you have done for us through the work of Jesus. And we're just here, Father, to say thank you. We love you so much. And I just pray that as we were reminded of all you've done for us, Lord, that our response as we take this and as we go from here might be to just go and to live lives that show how awesome you are. (laughs) That might attract people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.